Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and unless you've been living under a rock, you are aware that the United Auto Workers strike began on Friday, and nearly one in ten unionized auto workers in the United States went on strike, and they are deploying a very new strategy to push Detroit's three major auto manufacturers into raising wages. The unions are striking simultaneously at General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis. Uh, They own Chrysler. This is for the first time in history, hoping to negotiate higher wages at a profitable time in the industry. And it has the potential to be incredibly disruptive to the economy. Many on the right and the left agree that this dispute is going to have a huge impact on President Biden's energy policies. Both sides saying the strike pits Biden's electric vehicle agenda against his support of unions and examining how the electric vehicle transition is going to impact auto industry jobs. It's going to be very interesting. Other people are saying that the big winners in this whole thing are Tesla and China. Someone that is our go-to expert when it comes to trade is a great writer and a great mind. He's the founder of Reality Check, a blog covering economics, national security, technology, and more. He's also been a former advisor on trade issues to President Trump and I believe Bernie Sanders as well. I am pleased to welcome back to the microphones Alan Tonelson. Alan, it's been too long. Thanks for staying up late with us. Hiya, Frank. It's always my pleasure. Uh, First, give us your overall view of this auto strike. Is it as big of a deal as everyone is saying? I think it certainly could be a very big deal if it lasts long. We have heard in the last day or so some reports of some slight progress made and um, 
It doesn't sound all that encouraging, but we have to remember the strike has only lasted for about four days so far. So its future course is is certainly far to be determined. But I think you just nailed it in your introduction. This is a green transition microcosm, a green transition story that is not only going to profoundly affect the 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 future of the American automobile industry, of the American union movement, I think also, of American manufacturing, of the American economy. It's also, it could very well, especially if it lasts long, have a very profound effect on on the upcoming presidential election. And it's exactly because the the so-called green transition to electric vehicles, which the big three automakers seem to be very serious about, um, is going to be very expensive for them. I'm sure most of your listeners are already aware that they still lose a tremendous amount of money on each electric vehicle that they sell so far. So this whole proposition has been anything but profitable for them. And, and, and yet, at the same time, it's clear that that President Biden is determined, at least as long as he stays in office, to tilt government very powerfully in in the direction of that green transition. So these companies have to make massive investments, not only to set up factories that will turn out these cars, but to make sure that the production technologies that they use can make these cars profitable. I, I want to follow up on a couple of things that you said there. So you said that the transition to electric vehicles is something that these companies seem very serious about. And then you point out that these car companies aren't making really any money by selling these electric vehicles. So just so just so I understand this and the audience understands this, explain how the transition to EVs has kind of brought about the current state of affairs with respect to the big three. And just so we all understand, it's not as if the auto manufacturers want to do this. They're being mandated to do it by state governments and the federal government, right? Right. Right. In particular, California, which, of course, is a huge market uh, in large part because it's something like the fifth or sixth largest economy in the entire world. And, of course, what starts in California often winds up coming to the rest of the country as a result. But the the other major reason that that this strike and this green transition is creating such a such a crossroads for the auto manufacturers themselves and for their workforce is because making electric vehicles takes many fewer workers than making conventionally powered internal combustion engine vehicles and because it takes fewer workers um, this transition actually poses a mortal threat to the United Auto Workers Union. Um, and uh, I think that the, 
union leaders are certainly aware of this and one big sign of this awareness is that they're the only they're the only major labor union or certainly the only major manufacturing union so far that hasn't endorsed president biden's re-election bid so they are clearly not happy with sure. those green transition plans because they know that their livelihoods are at stake and in fact one of their major demands is a very substantial degree of job security. Um, they want these companies to promise them that that factories either won't be shut down or if factories are shut down, then fired workers will will. And I find this incredible will will be paid by the companies to do community service work. <laughs> Uh, that I, I did not know was one of the union's uh, negotiating points. But it's safe to say, for all the reasons that you cited, that this is a problem that's going to get worse with more states mm-hmm. mandating the transition to EVs, right? I mean, New York is going exactly. in this direction, Maryland. Right, yeah. And the these transition periods are very short. And we're talking about an enormous industry uh, that that still employs hundreds of thousands of workers and that once again makes all of its money and then some by producing gasoline-powered vehicles or perhaps hybrids. I'm not exactly sure wh- uh, whether hybrids are actually profitable, but certainly all electric vehicles are not in a very big way. The uh, We're talking with Alan Tonelson. If you want to be informed of anything that's happening in the economy and uh, the global stage, you got to check out his blog. It's called Reality Check. Just Google Reality Check or Alan Tonelson. It comes right up. But, Alan, the if I go to buy a car, right, and there's a, right. an uptick in costs because of labor costs or because of mandates for electric vehicles or anything else, you know, I can I also have the option of buying a car that's made in South Korea or Germany or a number of other countries outside the United States. And I I think one of the things that people who are more sympathetic to management's argument in this strike have been saying is that this is going to dramatically raise labor costs for them and by extension raise the price of a car for consumers. So you have the energy transition, which you've just explained. You have the foreign competition. Many of these countries are not even close to adhering to American labor and environmental standards. So they're able to offer products much cheaper. And you have the government subsidies for EVs that are aiding this transition. Is there a possibility? Because, look, I get the sense when I talk to people, it doesn't matter whether they're Democrat or Republican. I get the sense that the workers, the UAW workers, are the sympathetic fight here. They're the fan favorite. They're the good guys, the the baby faces in wrestling. But is there a possibility that if there's a short-term win for the workers, meaning they get almost everything they want, that this could set up the big three for a long-term downfall? Well, I think that it's more likely, as you suggested, that the big three would transfer production somewhere else. But actually, I don't think that that somewhere else is going to include is 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 going to be mainly to foreign countries. Um, I'm not really worried about the Detroit automakers 
making electronic vehicles in China for export to the United States. Um, I'm not even that worried about them moving to Mexico to do so, although that that could well happen to some extent because there are quotas as a result of the recent U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. There are quotas on the numbers of vehicles that both Mexico and Canada can send into the United States before major tariffs come on. And there are 27.5% tariffs on all auto imports from China. But I think the, the biggest threat to the UAW is that the big three automakers move more and more production to the right-to-work, non-unionized states of the South. Oh, that's interesting. And they they have already become major auto producers. All of the foreign brands are there, BMW in South Carolina, Toyota, Kentucky, Texas, Indiana, et cetera, et cetera. Honda, Southern Ohio, although um, and uh, which is not a big union stronghold, certainly. So I think that is much likelier. And in fact, it, it's been that movement southward that's actually put a great deal of the downward of the 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 downward wage pressure on the entire American automotive sector, because it has been certainly since uh, since about 1990, when, uh, when when we have the earliest government data, since that point, it's been a major wage laggard, even though employment has grown quite robustly. It, it, very interesting. And you alluded to the fact that this could affect the presidential race. And I, I think you're you're right that that's a strong possibility. A number of folks, particularly on the left, are criticizing President Trump and other you know right of center populists for not supporting yeah. the auto workers. It's no secret that Trump, because of his positions on immigration, for his positions on trade, he's had a lot of union support, um, much more oh, sure. so than a lot of other Republicans. I'm curious, oh, gosh, do, yes. do you think that maybe President Trump is missing an opportunity here by not being more outspoken in support of the UAW workers, given the fact that Trump's position on the EV transition is almost identical right. to where the UAW is? Well, that's the thing. I, I do think Trump ha- has been rather outspoken about this. He certainly hasn't been very supportive of the UAW leadership, uh, which um, um, and and he's not a great fan of theirs in return. But the president, but the former president's position has actually been he's going to help the unionized auto workers by basically tremendously slowing this automotive transition to electronic vehicles, because. Because he's argued, as we've just pointed out earlier in this show, um, electric vehicles just won't require as many workers. And this transition could be a formula. Whatever you think of the environmental merits, et cetera, it's clearly going to be a formula for massive unemployment in the American automobile industry. I want you to listen to a piece of audio from Professor Scott Galloway of NYU. He was on CNN Saturday talking about the UAW and about the uh, labor union, the labor movement in this country in general. I'm going to I'm going to ask you to listen to this. and Then I have a related follow up. Uh, good to be with you, okay. Michael. You know, something I think every young professional needs to understand, and that is the, the distinction between being right and being effective. And I think it would 
be hard to argue that the union's intentions to restore dignity to the American worker and have a fair living wage, it'd be hard to argue they aren't right. But the bottom line is they haven't been effective. Uh, Union membership's been cut in half of the 47 Western nations that have unions. 46 have seen union membership decline. It used to be one in three workers in the U.S. Uh, Now it's one in 10. In the auto industry, it's gone from 60% to 16%. So there's just no getting around it. The unions have been an ineffective construct. And despite the headlines of 330 Starbucks stores unionizing, not one of those 330 unionized stores has resulted in a collective bargaining agreement. In other words, it makes for a great headline, but the people on the front lines haven't seen their compensation move. So I would argue that unions, quite frankly, are a failed construct. Their intentions are noble and people support their intentions. But as a vehicle for registering or recognizing that those intentions, they just haven't worked. Uh, Alan, Galloway's comments really surprised me quite mm-hmm. a bit because I know the priority that he's placed on uh, income inequality. Mm-hmm. We see right. the writers on strike. We see the uh, actors on strike. He mentioned Starbucks. We've been talking about UAW. There's been so many headlines over the course of the last three or four months that the American labor movement is back. How do you view the American labor movement these days, Alan? I think it's it's really on the ropes. And one of the major signs of this is that is that as Professor Galloway indicated, um, the concept of unions is 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 very popular among the American public. In fact, according to most polls, its popularity has actually risen quite a lot in recent years. But nobody joins. And in fact, the unions themselves seem to be so aware of this that they've taken to trying to to organize workers, to help them press for more pay without actually requiring them to join their union. So something is clearly very amiss there. What I also find fascinating is that the UAW is among several unions that has tried to organize the South. And it's failed miserably. For whatever reason, southern manufacturing workers simply do not want to unionize. Now, there's no question that the right-to-work regulations make organizing in right-to-work states much, much harder. But every time factories work, every time factory workforces vote, they always turn it down. Now, the unions are always crying that the vote was unfair and that management exerted improper pressures on its workers, but but these anti-union votes have been so consistent that you've got that 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 I think you've simply got to recognize that something much more fundamental is at work here. And if the UAW and various other unions, if they can't organize the South, I, I, I really do think we're going to see a very substantial shift of economic activity, including manufacturing. To those states. Uh, and of course, not to mention the fact that companies also find them very appealing because by and large, they're very low tax and very light regulation states. 
I want to pick your brain on one or two other issues while I have you here because uh, your blog covers so many different issues that I'm always uh, so interested in getting your take on. As anybody that had to drive into midtown Manhattan in the last 48 hours is painfully aware, the U.N. General Assembly is in town. Whenever I discuss the U.N., doesn't matter the subject, doesn't matter the time of year, doesn't matter what the U.N. is doing. Inevitably, I get a caller or two that asks a question which is sometimes asked seriously and it's sometimes asked rhetorically, but without fail, even though I try to come up with a substantive answer to this question, I really fail each and every time to answer it. Here's the question. I'm going to pose it to you. And this is a serious question. It's not tongue in cheek at all. Yeah. Okay. What purpose does the United Nations serve today? Frank, I think at most it is a somewhat useful talk shop. It it creates an opportunity for heads of state to gather from all over the world, from all continents, to get to gather together in one place, and not not mainly to make speeches before the the general assembly, because those are obviously mainly for show but to meet with each other in private and perhaps um, and perhaps push forward their own agendas in various ways to uh, to to enable themselves to approach their own country's goals vis-a-vis other countries um, a little bit faster. Um, but certainly in terms of keeping global uh, of keeping peace globally, um, it's had almost no impact, whatever. And even keeping peace regionally, and we have to remember there have been various UN peacekeeping forces that have been sent to various global hotspots, like the Balkans or various places in West Africa or Haiti, and they've failed miserably. They've just failed miserably. So again, I, I certainly wouldn't favor the U.S. pulling out, but but I also wouldn't pay very much attention to what the United States does there because it's simply not it, it's simply too big and too unwieldy to enable it as an organization to accomplish very much. Understanding what you said, that the General Assembly is more theater than substance. Right. If you're an American, the two big speeches today that people are going to be paying attention to are President Biden and President Zelensky of Ukraine. If you're an American, what do you want to hear these two leaders saying? What's the best case scenario in the Biden speech and the Zelensky speech? Well, what I'd like to hear both of them say is that they're ready to come to a significant compromise to end the Ukraine war. Um, I think that is imperative because I still worry tremendously that this war could spill over Ukraine's borders into NATO countries' territory, and that would activate the U.S. defense commitment, which could in turn literally lead to World War III and global nuclear holocaust. And as I've written repeatedly, however valiant the the Ukrainian people's struggle has been, however much everyone of goodwill has to admire them, they are simply their country is simply not a vital interest of the United States's that's 
worth risking our nation's very survival, and they never have been. So this war has to end through compromise, and unfortunately, Ukraine is going to get uh, a relatively short end, end of that stick. Unfortunately, neither President Biden nor President Zelensky seems in any mood to negotiate seriously. Now, now to be honest, neither does Vladimir Putin. But I do think that because that mainly because this conflict has turned into a kind of a meat grinder war of attrition, I've got to think Russia, with its superior resources and manpower, has to hold the upper hand over the long run, however incompetent its military's performance has been so far. Alan, we're going to have to end it there due to time. I always enjoy speaking with you and uh, mercifully for both of us, both the Mets and Yankees seasons will be over so we can uh, we can chat (laughs) hopefully without the daily series of depressions that both of those (laughs) teams bring. Wait till next year. Exactly. Wait till next year. We met we met fans say that on opening day. Believe me. Thank you, Alan. We learned how to say it now. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye. You. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.